0: Welcome to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. I'm Hashem Mahalparra. Germany is suspending its approval for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that's designed to bring gas from Russia to Europe. It's complete and ready to supply energy to the continent ahead of the winter. But why is it being halted and is the decision politically motivated? Let's bring in our guests in Berlin, Ulrich Bruckner, professor of political science at Stanford University in Berlin. In Moscow, Pavel Felgenhauer is political commentator and columnist for Novaya Gazeta. In Bern, Cornelia Meyer is an economist and oil and gas specialist. Welcome to the programme. Ulrich, to what extent was the German watchdog's decision to suspend the approval for the Nord Stream 2 purely technical and based on administrative grounds?
1: Well, this is hard to say. On the one hand, it's not a court that acts independently. So an agency reports to the government. And that was exactly the reason why the European Court of Justice criticized the status of the federal agency for the network approval, that their status should become more independent in order to avoid political influence. So at its current state, it can be influenced, they can receive orders from the government, but the question is, who's calling them? Because we are in the middle of a handover from the Merkel administration to the new, as we call it, streetlight coalition with three parties involved, and therefore no one is really in the driver's seat at this
0: point. Pavel, I understand the general sentiment in Russia would be that basically this is a politically motivated decision.
2: Well, actually, the Kremlin says they believe it's not. This is a a technical uh, kind of hiccup that um, the Russian uh, uh, kind of uh, sponsored uh, Nord Stream 2 AG, which is registered in uh, Switzerland and owns and operates and should operate Nord Stream 2, we will have to create a a German subsidiary, and that will take four to six uh, weeks uh, to create. And then the German agency will again begin the process of certification, and that, in general, the uh, period of certification, which is four months beginning from uh, 8 September, that means January 8, they'll complete. There's a problem that after that, the issue may go for four more months to the European Commission. So it's not clear when actually uh, Nord Stream 2 is going to be operational, and that's not seen very good in Russia.
0: Cornelia, Given the current situation, it seems that this is going to take at least eight months for the paperwork to be processed in Germany to ensure this is going to be under EU jurisdiction. And you have at the same time energy crunch, which is likely to further uh, strain the economy in Europe. How do you see this moving forward in the upcoming months?
3: Well, it's not easy, and I don't think it has to take eight months. To a certain degree, while unfortunate, I understand what the German regulator has done, because Switzerland is not in the EU, and anything under Swiss, um, you know, under Swiss um, uh, law is not, is not subject to the European Court of Justice. So if they want to get the pipeline approved by the EU, this may not be the, the dumbest move that they have done, uh, so what 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 really is important is to to really fast track the, the this incorporation and the move of the assets and then fast track the approval and given the energy crunch that we have i think it's in in most people's interest to 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 get this done quickly however as um, our colleague in Berlin has pointed out, we are in we are in between, in an interregnum. We are between two governments. And the new government, you have the Social Democrats, the SPD, who is very pro, uh, on balance, very pro Nord Stream 2. And you have the Greens who are very against Nord Stream 2. So this is not going to be, it's not going to be the easiest of times for Nord Stream 2.
0: Ulrich, mm-hmm. le- until a few, you- Months ago, the general feeling in Europe that Russia was not pumping enough gas into European continent, choosing instead what it described as the need to refill its own stocks. And this explains why many have been saying that Russia is weaponizing its uh, gas. Uh, Do you think that this decision by the German watchdog comes against the backdrop of this uh, ongoing uh, row over how to deal with gas supplies in Europe? Well,
1: we have seen several winters in which Russia weaponized gas supply for geostrategic reasons. And one can read the latest developments in a similar way, because we are currently in a rather hot phase of a cold conflict that includes Belarus and it includes the Ukraine. And it's certainly in Russia's best interest to see very high gas prices while inside the European Union we see a number of countries being heavily dependent on Russian gas that differs from country to country and that also explains why we have a very cacophonic orchestra these days when it comes to think of Shall North Stream be open as soon as possible to lower the gas prices? Mm. Or is this just another weapon in Putin's hands that can be turned against the European Union as a whole?
0: Pavel, I mean, the gas giant Gazprom decided to reduce the shipments through the Yamal uh, uh, Europe pipeline that goes through Belarus and also Poland, saying that instead it needs at this particular moment to prioritize the refilling of its own domestic storage facility, which led many to think, oh, you know what, Russia is squeezing gas supplies for political reasons.
2: Of course, Moscow rejects any kind of such notions and says that the high gas prices in Europe are a result of very high gas prices in the uh, Pacific Asia region and that um, liquefied gas uh, supplies by tanker going in that direction uh, instead of going to Europe because the prices are higher there. And that Gazprom is, is actually honoring all its contract obligations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem, of course, is very much there. Um, high gas prices. Moscow says it's not that interested. It's interested in a stable situation, but it's also clear that Russia would want to have an option not to use the Ukrainian gas transport system at all uh, uh, to put pressure maybe on Ukraine, or also if there's any kind of serious flare-up on the border between Ukraine and Russia, uh, which could technically even stop fully any mm-hmm. kind of transit of gas through ukraine then uh russia would have options through two pipelines uh, actually four of them because they're two pipelines each with two pipes going through under the on the baltic sea and of course another one uh, other pipelines going through turkey so russia uh, could bypass uh, a possible confrontation zone and continue to keep Europe supplied Mm -hmm. and maybe incent Europe not to intervene into any kind of flare-ups that could happen in Eastern Europe.
0: Cornelia, you have winter and you have energy crisis. Who are we to blame? Is it the post-pandemic recovery? Is it Russia or is it weather-related events, particularly last winter?
3: It is the perfect storm. You had last winter, you had such a cold winter that storage was unplenished. And I have some sympathy for Gazprom again for first filling their own storage because they had a cold winter too. So their storage was was depleted too. For first, you know, you first look after your own people and then, then you go further. So, so that's one thing. Then we have obviously the competition as was mentioned between um, Asia And Europe for LNG. Because China is importing more and more LNG. This year, China will become the largest importer globally of LNG. It will will supersede Japan in that position. Um, And so so we have, and obviously we have some geopolitical tensions, but, but but mainly it's the perfect storm of supply and demand. And when it comes to price, yes, obviously the high LNG prices are partly to blame, but we also have to. See that part of the European takeoff is indexed to oil, and so when oil prices go up, part of the part of the indexation goes up as well. So, so it's it's tough. And for Europe, the question is: How do we get enough gas? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we ensure that we don't put the poorest segments of the population for the cho- for, to the stark choice of do I eat or do I heat?
0: Now, all right. For the governing coalition in Germany, you have a decision that is made now, which is most likely going to result in low storage levels in Europe, an energy crisis, different economy sectors affected. Is there any contingency plan here for Germany and for Europe?
1: Well, it's interesting that every member of the upcoming new government announces that we need radical changes when it comes to climate change. And they are all pushing for renewables that more needs to be done, more than what the previous government has done. And given that we see rising gas prices, that could potentially be a leverage to understand that it's now high time and we shouldn't discuss the nitty gritties of how distant is a windmill next to a building or all the reasons why it didn't meet the targets that have been defined before. So there is certainly a push coming from the current, what was described as a perfect storm, that will see more efforts and more investment in renewables that decreases the geostrategic dependency from Russia.
0: Pavel says this is a crisis moment. Everybody's looking for leverage. And when it comes to Ukrainians, they seem to be pretty much excited about the potential of what might happen next, particularly because they are now going to be part of the consultation uh, process. Do you think that the Ukrainians now are given this unique opportunity where they have to put more pressure on all the parties for whatever happens in the future?
2: Uh, well, yes. The German regulator included, they included uh, the Ukrainian representative in Germany of Neftegaz there a gas transporting company into the certification process. But, of course, it doesn't have any veto power. Uh, Ukrainian opinion may be taken into consideration, but no more than that. It's a kind of nicety, but it doesn't give Ukraine any kind of say. And they are worried that if Russia manages to get uh, Nord Stream 2 up fully operational anytime soon in the coming Year, in the beginning of the coming year, that may give Russia the opportunity to do something more drastic in military terms mm-hmm. in the uh, Ukraine, and also, of course, uh, cut the Ukrainian supply through Ukraine, maybe dramatically, and that means they won't have to ha- use the so-called uh, virtual re- reverse system to get Russian gas, but a- a- officially it's not coming from Russia, it's coming from Slovakia or somewhere but actually it's Russian gas and they won't get that. So they are also have, have problems this winter and in general further on. So yes, Ukrainians are worried on a number of issues concerning Russia and they're very, very worried.
0: Yes. Cornelia, how do you uh, respond to the argument that one of the main reasons why in the past the Russians were trying to deliberately withhold gas from Europe is particularly because they were trying to... Push the Europeans to shift from the spot market purchases to the newly online platform based in uh, Saint Petersburg, so that the Russians will have a bigger say on the on the trade, on trading of gas.
3: Well actually the Russians prefer prefer not spot markets but long term agreements, which when you know how much investment is needed into getting gas from the gas field to the to the end user, to the burner tip, is, is, is perfectly understandable. And I, I, I would not I would not take big stock on that. Um when it comes to Ukraine is the Ukraine is, is is difficult, it's tricky, but I would also like to remind us that Russia has us supplied Europe with gas for the past 50 years or so without essentially missing a beat, even even when Mm -hmm. the former Soviet Union was breaking up. So, yes, there are the politics um, and and obviously they're playing politics. But in the end, overall, Russia has been a pretty reliable supplier. It also Mm -hmm. needed the foreign currency um, from, from Europe. I would just like to quickly respond to our colleague in Germany, Mm-hmm. In terms of absolutely the German government wants to move to more renewables, but to get from here to there, they will still need gas. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, they want to get out of coal, they, they are getting out of nuclear. So, somehow, you need to have the baseload to produce the electricity that everybody needs.
0: Okay, uh, Ulrich says we're trying to figure out the ultimate uh, end game for. All the parties here. Now, Europe's supplies of natural gas remain tight, which means that the prices are definitely going to continue to go up, which is most likely going to push many countries, Germany in particular, to revisit dirty uh, fuel, particularly uh, coal and uh, fuel oil. Is this a good option, given that the coalition with the Greens, part of it, are definitely going to dismiss it?
1: Well, it is too early to predict what exactly the new coalition government will decide. They keep everything secret, not only on energy policy and geostrategic questions, but the whole coalition agreement is kept a secret. And we will only learn next week what the various compromises will look like. And one can read the decision today as a way to buy time for the new government Mm. to decide how to balance the conflicting interests, how to fulfill the requirements from the European Union to divide the operation and the network. This is technically an important reason for the agency why it decided the way it decided. But I think it's also an additional geopolitical bargaining chip in the ongoing discussions with Russia and Belarus. If one makes a move, another country makes another move, mm-hmm. and
0: this does not even need to have anything to do with energy. Pavel says this is definitely a crisis with geopolitical proportions. Now, the Russians, because they uh, supply 35% of the gas imports for the European Union, have a leverage, but ultimately their biggest concern is that if they have any future problems with the Russian, it means that a huge chunk of the revenues they used to get from the European market is going to be massively affected. Is this something which is likely to push the Russians for a balancing act here?
2: Well, if, uh, Europe needs Russian and Russian gas. And of course, Russia needs Europe too. Russia is supplying uh, natural gas to Japan, to china but sure. the uh, the uh, europe is an uh, essential uh, client so russia and europe are tied together there uh, the future has problems with the, um the uh, 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 co2 uh, signature um, taxation coming into mm-hmm. effect in europe with the european union saying that they will oppose any kind of extraction of Gas or oil in the Arctic, which Russia is rejecting right now, so there are serious problems in the future. There are problems right now and problems in the future. Uh, as, uh, how Russia is going to be seen and how Russia is going to be interacting with Europe mm-hmm. uh, on supplying gas, not only gas, of course. Russia supplies many other uh, oil and uh, metals and fertilizer and lots of other kind of commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are uh, Russia and Europe have to work together. But right now, there's a lot of problems and a lot of misunderstanding. It's very complex and very dangerous. Cornelia, you
0: said there's going to be a long way to go for the Germans before they have their own diversified renewable energy platforms. For the time being, do you think that bringing non-Russian oil uh, to the European market is going to be easy, tapping into potential resources nearby or looking for alternatives? Is this something which is feasible in the short term?
3: Well, already, we already see LNG from all sorts of parts of the world to come to Europe, to LNG terminals. We have um, pipelines coming from the Mediterranean, from North Africa through the Mediterranean. But mind you, there again, we have, if you look at Libya, if you look at Algeria, we have geopolitical tensions. So, so, so there again, um, we, we need to, um, it's just, uh, Europe will need to get the gas and the oil from where they can get it, and um, Russia will will we will remain a major a major supplier of oil. We will see the geopolitical tensions, um, but it will remain very important for the time being because given energy transition and mm-hmm. given that, especially countries like Germany, Switzerland, want to get out of nuclear, everybody wants to get out of coal, I don't see how you get okay. around gas.
0: Uh, Rick, less than a minute, if you don't mind. The European Green Deal, is it something that is likely to be a moment for the Europeans to say, you know what, it's about time for us to look into a decarbonized, developed economy instead of this reliance that has been going on for generations with the Russians, which seems to be a major source of concern for the Europeans now.
1: Well, this became certainly a mainstream perspective, not only in Germany as a forerunner for climate change policies, because we can't afford it, But it's also what the European Union or the European Commission, as the driver of this, put as the top priority. And this will undermine the Russian business model that is massively dependent on having partners that are still willing to burn fossil fuel. Of course, it is a transition matter, and it's a question of how long it's going to take. But it will certainly change the mutual relationship between Russia and the European Union if the Green Deal changes the energy mix towards more renewables.
0: Quite fascinating as this story unfolds that many people are thinking that the U.S. could step in and offer an alternative uh, supply for the Europeans in case they decide to Part ways with the uh, Russians, but it remains to be seen whether the shale capacity and whether the Americans will be able to fill in the gap and the void left by the Russians if there is a split. Eric uh, Bruckner, Pavel Felgenhauer, Cornelia Meyer, I really appreciate your insight. Thank you very much. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Omar Istanbuli, Abdurrahman Warsam, and Paul Taylor. Studio Sound was by Yara Atalla. The program was edited by Anna Savic, Lynn Gwynn, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday.